the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good morning and welcome to the Jimmy Sangenberger Show here on News Talk 710-KNUS. It feels like I was just on the air. Oh, I was. Wasn't I, Leroy? You were there, too, on the other side of the glass. It's you... Produce both my show, Leroy Duffenbaugh, I'm talking to behind the glass, produces my show and the Stefan Tubb show. And I was just in for Stefan yesterday for uh, the third time. He, of course, hosts from four to seven every weekday here on News Talk 710 KNUS after Deborah Flora's show from three to four. Of course, you've got George Brockler weekday mornings from six to ten. But yeah, uh, I was just here, and I'm glad to be back in the saddle once again. 303-696-1971 is our telephone number if you'd like to join in to the festivities. You can text into the show on the 710KNUS app on your smartphone. You can tweet at me 24-7-365 at Sang Center. That's Sang with an E, not an A, Center on Twitter. And you can email me. You can email me in a couple of ways. One, 710knus.com. Go to the Jimmy Sangenberger Show page. Two, log on to jimmysangenberger.com. Remember, there's no A, I, or U in Sangenberger. It's all E's all the time. Once you know that, Sangenberger is easy. So lots of ways to get in touch with the show, especially at 303. 303- 696-1971. That is indeed our telephone number. What's coming up on today's show? Well, I teased a little bit yesterday of my interview with the opinion editor at Newsweek, Josh Hammer. We'll play that interview in full. Unfortunately, wasn't able to uh, do the interview live, so we ended up having to pre-record it. And so we will air that in the next segment, coming up in just a little bit. Josh always has some good perspectives. Uh, A couple of months ago, he was up at Lamar Lago. He lives in Florida. Um, Big fan of of Ron DeSantis. He's been fond of President Trump. We're going to talk with him about the politics of the day and particularly looking at 2024, Trump's run and Ron DeSantis, the prospect of Ron versus Don, we'll talk about FTX. I spent some time yesterday on this, but this is on the politics of the FTX crypto exchange collapse. Crazy was been going on there. So good conversation up ahead with Josh Hammer, opinion editor at Newsweek. In addition, I'll be checking in with Dick Wadhams, former Republican Party chair, Republican strategist at the top of the hour. Not so much for an election postmortem as a where do we go from here? What's the state of affairs in Colorado looking like? And is it possible to regain ground in 2024? But what can we do 
if anything, to thwart bad policies that will be coming from the left in this state. We'll check in with Dick Wadhams, and that's it for guests. Otherwise, it's you, 303-696-1971. That is our telephone number. Again, you can text on the 710KNUS app on your smartphone as well. So this is something else. I want to start right here on education. Did you know that the last few years have set students behind because the education secretary at the federal level, Mr. Cardona, has just realized this? That has never been more important than now at a time when the pandemic has profoundly disrupted education. I remember the experience um, as a dad during the pandemic. You know, my daughter, she was taking uh, algebra class. My son was taking pre-calc. You know, algebra and pre-calculus, that's not something that I can really roll up my sleeves and help them with. They struggled. They were disconnected. Um, We saw the uh, pandemic uh, impact on them and their friends regularly. And we all saw recently the effect of the pandemic on the student learning on student learning in the nation's report card the results of those were just unacceptable the results are just unacceptable says one of the guys responsible for it miguel cardona did everything he could in concert with the teachers unions especially i think especially in the case of the department of education the nea There's two major unions, ATF, or AFT rather, the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association. Not that it really matters which was which in this case, but the Education Department worked in concert with the teachers' unions to keep schools closed longer and to slow walk their opening. We've seen the emails, and now... Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona has suddenly realized, suddenly realized that the pandemic has crushed children. Oh, wait, let's be more clear on what actually has crushed children's education and caused their outcome, learning outcomes to crater, which will set them behind. It wasn't the pandemic. It was the pandemic policies. The policies of the pandemic, where governments decided to shut down schools, they didn't need to shut down schools, but they decided to do so. And especially in the case of the feds, working in concert with the teachers unions, where those organizations that are not working in the interests of students not even working in the interests of teachers, by the way, said, oh, we want you to help keep schools closed. I mean, it's ludicrous to hear him say unacceptable. Yeah, it is unacceptable, and it was unacceptable. And you're part of the problem. Wall Street Journal editorial today, the full cost of the COVID-19 school shutdowns will take years to understand. But here's another estimate that will make many parents livid. If the recent learning loss can't be reversed, 
it would equate to a 1.6% drop in lifetime earnings for the average K-12 through student, or a nationwide total of some $900 billion. That's according to a recent study from researchers at Harvard and Dartmouth, which is based on census data and historical changes in performance on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, NAEP, known as the nation's report card. The researchers sought to predict how this year's deplorable test results could affect students over their lifetimes if they didn't catch up. And the most recent NAEP results showed a record drop in learning. And this guy, Secretary Miguel Cardona, has the audacity to say the learning loss is unacceptable when he was part and parcel of the problem? Let that sink in for a moment. It is not surprising how audacious he is, but he is audacious nonetheless in making those comments. And children are suffering the consequences of what he agrees is unacceptable, but guess what again? It was unacceptable. And when you look at the future of education, this new study from Harvard and Dartmouth indicating that we could see a 1.6% drop in lifetime earnings for the average K-12 through student, a nationwide total of nearly a trillion dollars, $900 billion. I mean, that's eye-popping. And it should be discouraging every American, whether you have kids or not. I mean, listening to Cardona, it, it just underscores really the mentality of this administration. We want you to forget what we did to help screw children over in their futures. Just nothing to see here. Yeah, right. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. You're listening to The Jimmy Sangenberger Show. We're going to take a break. When we come back, my conversation with Josh Hammer, opinion editor at Newsweek. Keep it right here. We are just getting started. News Talk 710 KNUS. What cool badass harmonica playing is that on Joe Bonamassa's tune, Look Out Man. Best damn bumper music known to man. Look out for it. Every Saturday morning, 6 to 9, from his album, Royal Tea. Gotta love it. Good morning. Way to kick things off with, again, the best damn bumper music known to man. Nine years running, and look, we're working on, my web guy and I are working on how to Get up on jimmysangenberger.com, the best way to get you to be able to be aware of the bumper music. I get a lot of requests, and I have for a while. I don't know why I've been dilly-dallying on this, but folks have wondered, okay, Jimmy, what's the bumper music? Can you get a playlist up? Can you get something up so that I can know what you're playing every week, etc.? Well, I'm working on that for jimmysangenberger.com. We'll have something up after Thanksgiving. Look forward to that. Once again, you're listening to the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, News Talk 710 KNUS. Yesterday afternoon, I caught up with Josh Hammer, 
the opinion editor at Newsweek to talk about the state of play and some of the political issues, including 2024. Let's roll the tape. I'm pleased now to be joined by the opinion editor at Newsweek and host of the Josh Hammer Show podcast, Josh Hammer. Welcome, sir. It's good to talk with you again. Jimmy, long time no talk. Hope you're doing all right out there. Oh, you know, other than Colorado becoming an even more blue state than ever before, I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? You're in Florida where I think our governors had the same kind of outcome of like 19 percentage points win, point wins. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how to feel about that in Colorado, but I feel pretty good for DeSantis. Yeah, look, Florida was obviously probably the brightest bright spot of this election cycle. You know, a few other states had good elections, Iowa, Ohio, you know, my home state, I think if I remember correctly, your home state as well, New York state, um, did did quite well actually this cycle. Um, but yes. uh, yeah, I, I, I do feel bad for my friends in Colorado back when I lived there. Yeah, it, it was uh, pretty shocking, but I'm more interested in our conversation about some of the things you're noticing nationally. Uh, you had a great piece out uh, in Friday, Newsweek, after 2022 setback, GOP race for 2024 is wide open. And I think that's a very important point because there are some who are sort of saying, well, Trump is inevitably going to be the nominee. There's almost no two ways about it. That's why he announced his run earlier this week, doing so very early. You say, eh, not so fast. The timing of Trump's announcement is kind of a giveaway to me. I I do not think that he would have felt the need to announce this early unless he was worried about his fairly tenuous grasp on the party and, by extension, the movement slipping away. I think the fact that he did this, trying to cut the chase, trying to get the cameras there. By the way, query how much the cameras and the attention even stay there. Um, I actually was at a hockey game Tuesday evening with a friend. I didn't, I didn't watch this thing live. But what I read in the press was that on the, on the Fox News, it was during the Hannity program, I think they kind of cut away halfway through, actually. And I, I was receiving texts from friends here in Florida who were there at Mar-a-Lago who really didn't sound particularly enthused, actually, at what they were witnessing. And as a, as a different friend texted me the next morning, this is a friend who actually worked in the administration, the Trump administration, that is. She said, this is like the Tom Brady presidential run. I mean, it's someone who's kind of coming back for one last hurrah. And, you know, look, I, I proudly voted for President Trump in, in Colorado, which, were, which is where I was living at the time, in 2020. Um, I think that he was, a, he was an excellent president. He was the greatest president in my lifetime, and I don't think it's a particularly close call. But I think that a sober-minded person has to look at things that he is talking about right now, kind of just the optics of this whole operation, and conclude that he, I think he's trying to catch some magic that was there years ago that may not necessarily be there anymore. I mean, he's talking so much, Jimmy, about 2020 stolen elections, stop this deal. Look, the Republican voters and conservatives, I think we know that a lot of shenanigans went down in 2020. We're, we're more interested in what you're going to do about it. We're also interested in what you're going to do about a whole host of issues that are affecting the country, whether it's immigration, inflation, you name it. And I, 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 from what I can see of President Trump, he's having a very difficult time getting over 2020. He's focused on kind of settling scores. And I, for one, am a Republican voter, and I'm not going to just kind of sit there 
and be told that he is necessarily the next nominee. I mean, let's see what happens. I mean, you, you know, there are, there are going to be many candidates. Trump is currently the only announced candidate, but it's going to be a fun field. And I think this thing is wide open right now. I really do. So in terms of, of where Trump is at right now with that lack of magic, I, I think it's interesting The Tom Brady run for president is a, a rather uh, a curious comparison. I think it might be a pointed one, too. When we think about Trump right now and the idea of bringing the magic back, he certainly had, and I watched the speech live, and, and I did have Fox News on as well, so I did see the cutaway, and then they were talking very glowingly about his speech and saying, look, if he stays focused like this speech, throughout a candidacy, then he could well be the nominee and he could well be the next president. In fact, I think Mike Huckabee said on there he would be unbeatable. Yet one of the things about Trump that captures some of the enthusiasm among the base is that he's all over the map. He goes on the attack. It, the election stuff that you were just talking about can rile up some in the base that are very strong Trump loyalists. I don't see how he can really thread that needle, certainly in a way to say the rest of the pack that might want to run like a DeSantis, like a Mike, Mike Pence, would be foolish to try. I, I think that Trump is in a very difficult place right now as far as his grasp on the party. I mean, he has probably 30 to 35 percent of Republican voters nationally. He has an absolute vice grip on them. I mean, you know, they are loyalists. There is really no one else who can compete. I think there's a lot of us, though, who voted for Trump who are just simply not necessarily convinced that he is the right guy at this right time to carry the movement forward because, you know, he obviously is, is getting older. I mean, he, you know, he would be in his 80s if he were president of the United States once we get ahead to 2025 and so forth. And again, he has, is having a hard time, from what I can tell, focus on the issues. I mean, if you compare that speech on Tuesday night in Mar-a-Lago, which I did see the next morning uh, on the clips and whatnot. If you compare that to the infamous kind of summer 2015 escalator talk, you know, not only is the energy difference notable, he had markedly less energy and was more subdued and kind of just less frenetic and, and less all the things that his voters, I think, love to see out of him. He's just not talking necessarily about the issues that animate us. I mean, you heard a little bit about that. I think I, I heard a reference to critical race theory at one point, but the suite of issues has has changed. I mean, some of the issues remain the same from that initial 2016 run. You know, trade, immigration, and so forth. The issues that animate him. Some of these some of these issues are still relevant. And there's any there's any number of other issues now that are super relevant. I mean, kind of the the, the entire rise of wokeism, of intersectionality, of ESG, of DEI, of, of of critical race theory, big tech. I mean, there's a there's a whole host of issues right now. And you know, again, as, as a primary as a future, the current and future Republican primary voter, you know, I, for one, am looking at President Trump's track record in the White House, and he was able to accomplish a lot, a lot of good, both domestic policy and foreign policy, but he also was not able to accomplish nearly as much as I think he could have otherwise done if he had made better sure. personnel decisions and so forth. And I, I don't see any particular indication that he has learned from those mistakes either. Again, it's just a, it's just a constant kind of trying to relitigate 2020, an election that I have time and time again publicly said that I believe was stolen, broadly speaking, stolen, referring to these dubious legal kind of changes to voting laws and the New York Post, Hunter Biden depression, all of that. But uh, again, I, I am deeply, deeply grateful for all that he did in office. But I, I'm just, not, I'm just not feeling it this time. And I think mm -hmm. I've, 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 I've spoken with a lot of friends out there who are 
kind of similarly feeling like he's trying to capture some old magic that might just it, it just might not be there this time. Again, Josh Hammer, our guest opinion editor at Newsweek. Let's talk about others in the field, though. You look at the polls for Ron DeSantis in a Ron versus Don matchup, and he's doing very well in a number of states. But then you've also got Mike Pence, who this week, when he was on Fox News and other stations pushing his book, it seemed like he was getting ready to mount a run for president. Nikki Haley could be in the mix. Mike Pompeo, the former secretary of state. How do you handicap the rest of this field, given how wide open you contend it is, Josh? Well, I, I mean, I'm seeing the same polls, Jimmy, that you're seeing. I mean, it seems to me like Ron DeSantis, I'm a little biased, obviously. I, I live here in Florida. I've gotten to know the governor a little bit. I think extremely highly of him. But, it, you know, it certainly seems to me like he is in the poll position of the non-Trump rivals. I mean, he's even polling ahead of Trump right now in a lot of the post-election day polling, both nationally and state-specific, whether it's Florida, Texas, Iowa, Georgia, you know, a lot of the states that they have polled, and admittedly, these polls are very, very premature, to put it mildly, because, again, no one has actually declared yet other than Donald Trump. But a lot of the polling does show that DeSantis' support has skyrocketed just over the last month. So from October to November, DeSantis' support has shot up. Trump's support has actually gone down quite a bit. And I, I think that it's a very important point to make, because but you're already starting to see this narrative form from some of President Trump's like truly, truly inner circle. You're starting to see this narrative form that DeSantis is some sort of establishment rhino. He's got like the hedge funders, the Wall Streeters, the the, the donor class, you know, a Wall Street Journal editorial board, some kind of icons of the Republican establishment. And all of that may be true, but if the polling is anywhere close to what it says it is. He also has a ton of base support, a ton of grassroots support. And the reason for that, and I can tell you that as someone who has lived here in Florida for almost a year and a half now after I moved here from Colorado, the reason for that is that his, his track record speaks for itself. I mean, he has an incredible track record of the state. Registered voters have shifted 600,000 from Democrats to Republican, new voters that have moved to Florida since the onset of COVID. It's Republicans outnumbering Democrats by a two to one margin. People are literally moving with their feet to be here, to be a part of this, to be, you know, to obviously famously be free from COVID during the lockdowns and the vaccine mandates, and just to live under a dynamic kind of transformational Republican leadership that is fighting all the relevant issues, both capital, critical race theory. And his track record is, is not that of an establishment chamber of commerce rhino. I mean, no chamber of commerce rhino would ever take on one of the state's largest employers, the Walt Disney Company, the way that the governor did That's a good point. Earlier, earlier this year. It's kind of the antithesis of what you'd expect from a chamber of commerce-oriented kind of candidate. So I don't think that dog will hunt, so to speak. But, uh, you know, as far as the other candidates are concerned, I mean, no one is really kind of currently getting traction in this extremely early preliminary polling. But, again, it is really just that. It is extremely early. But according to what the polls that I'm seeing and you're seeing, it does look like right now it could be a two-man race, I guess. So you think it, it, Pence, Pompeo, Haley, that they – could they run but basically be – almost non-issues, that there's such big personalities between Ron and Don that it sort of may come down to just a two-man race? You know, it's so easy, to, it, or excuse me, it's so hard to say, obviously, but, you know, I guess the issue is if you look at a lot of the other folks we're talking about running, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, probably chief among them, 
Tom Kahn has already said he's not going to run. You know, Pompeo and Pence don't currently hold any kind of office. So it's going to be very difficult for them to kind of generate the kind of headlines that might bring new momentum to their side. Uh, you know, maybe like a Christy Nome in South Dakota could catch fire. I presume that Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. there's, 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 there's probably a decent chance that he will run again. And, you know, full, full disclosure, I was a big Cruz supporter in the 2016 election. But I, I do fear that Senator Cruz probably had his best chance back in 2016. Not to say that he can't do it this time, obviously, but he's, you know, the yeah. momentum just, just doesn't seem to be there right now. But yeah, when it, when it comes to like a Pompeo or a Pence or a Nikki Haley would be another example, a lot of these folks just are simply not in positions where they can naturally attract a lot of headlines and a lot of organic grassroots momentum right now. Now, having said that, it's always possible that DeSantis makes like a big misstep. It's possible that he misfires. But I just don't see it happening. I mean, he's an extremely shrewd, cable person. He picks extremely careful fights, and he wins those fights. Yeah. And I, I don't see it happening, honestly. I have one more question on this topic, and then I want to briefly ask you about another big story that's been going on with this FTX situation. But you say in your column for Newsweek on Friday, quote, shaming the Republican base into blindly standing by a past president with such a checkered electoral record, no questions asked, is not going to cut it. And you note, of course, the 2024 Republican presidential race, which currently features precisely one declared candidate, is wide open. To that point of shaming, can you explain that briefly, but also consider the other way around, where there may be some in the Republican base who feel that they are being shamed right now by many in the conservative media? I've gotten some criticisms along these lines, I think, over the course of this last week as well that we're almost shaming them for wanting to support Donald Trump. Sure. I mean, I, I can answer those two questions in order, I guess. So, I mean, as far as the first line is concerned, I mean, the line that you hear from from Trump and some, from some folks who are, like, in his true, true inner circle, like, I, I think I've seen, like, Seb Gorsuch be something along these lines, right, is, it would, is that would be an act of disloyalty for someone to challenge President Trump, whether it's someone like a Pompeo or a Pence or a Haley who served under him, or in the case of a Ron DeSantis, someone who, um, you know, uh, quite possibly would not have won his gubernatorial race were it not for Trump's uh, imprimatur of legitimacy and campaigning and so forth there. And, you know, I, I, I just don't really know how far that argument goes. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're voting for president of the United States here, you're voting for the most important elected position in the entire world. And it is entirely legitimate for voters to want to see more than one candidate when considering who it is best to nominate for their party when there is not – at least when there is not currently an incumbent. And you know, President Trump is a former president, but he's not currently an incumbent. So I would expect nothing less than an open field, and you know, as, as an American patriot, as someone you know, who reveres this country, its wonderful founding principles, constitution – and especially as someone who reveres America as much as I do, but is simultaneously also profoundly worried about the current decadence, dare I say, declining stature of the United States and, and all of that, you know, we're basically running out of time, I guess, is what I'm saying. And we can't elect someone who is just so preoccupied with fighting yesterday's fight and picking, you know, grievances especially about personnel decisions that, you know, are under his control, as the case sometimes is with President Trump and his personnel decisions with hiring and firing. So I don't think the disloyalty argument is particularly persuasive. And, you know, again, just based on the various 
conversations I've had over the past few weeks, that's kind of the sense that I get from a lot of others as well. As far as kind of the latter is concerned, you know, I would never personally ever shame anyone. For, yeah. and, for and that's not my intention at all either. But I think a lot of the negative talk about Trump from the right over the course of this week may have given that impression to some people who support him. Yeah. And, you know, I, I any, anyone who is making a, a not even a criticism, but maybe a skepticism, I guess would be a better word. Anyone, anyone from the right in conservative media, radio, podcast, column writing, whatever, who is making an argument that we should at least be a little skeptical of just letting Trump sail away with this thing. You know, we have to be careful that we recognize that we're very grateful for what President Trump did in office because he really was excellent. He was an excellent president. I mean, his President Trump's one term in office was by many metrics considerably more conservative than either Ronald Reagan's two terms. I mean, he did a lot good. I mean, domestic policy, foreign policy, judges. I mean, look, on a very personal level, Jimmy, I mean, I clerked, I'm a lawyer by background, I clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit for Judge James B. Ho, who's a Trump nominee. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I personally and vocationally benefited from this match. So I, we should all make sure that we are extremely grateful for the wonderful you know things that he was able to accomplish again the relevant question though is moving forward it's not so much necessarily what the past is you know and, and people are able to distinguish the two we can simultaneously say that maybe one person was the best candidate at a specific place at a specific time but simultaneously, perhaps someone else might be better to kind of carry the torch forward hmm. from here. Sure. Uh, Josh Hammer, our guest, opinion editor at Newsweek, just want to ask you briefly, uh, there is this cryptocurrency tycoon named Sam Bankman-Fried. People have been talking all about him and his cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, which is in a lot of hot wire, hot water going to bankruptcy. It is looking more and more like almost a, a Ponzi scheme of sorts. There are a lot of legal issues going on here. But the question I want to ask you is about the politics of this story, because he is the second largest donor to Democrats in this last cycle of 2022. He also in the Wall Street Journal had an interesting editorial about this, has basically said that he is has sort of engaged in virtue signaling that a lot of his donations, a lot of the things that he has said on Twitter and elsewhere have been intended more to curry favor through virtue signaling than some genuine political objectives. What do you make of all this from the political side of it? Well, a few things. One is it's been interesting for me to see FTS in the news so much. Uh, so I live here in Florida, as I said, and um, I, I used to – I recently moved, but I was – prior to that, I was walking distance from the Miami Heat Arena in downtown Miami off the same boulevard, which is literally – or at least was until a week ago, was called FTX Arena. Um, so it, it's been very interesting for me to kind of see FTX all over the news, especially because you know the, the mayor here, Francis Suarez, the mayor of – of Miami, Florida, is like a huge proponent of crypto, and and I was I, I saw some tweets of his about FTX just a handful of weeks before this whole thing went down. So you know, it's not just Democrats who have been kind of bamboozled and have indirectly benefited from this. To an extent, it's actually some you know crypto friendly Republicans as well. Now, I probably should say, Jimmy, I'm not sure what your investment portfolio looks like. I personally am, am not a crypto guy. Me I have never put I, I've never put a single penny into it actually. Um, I, I just, I, I frankly just don't understand what the there is, so yes. to speak. You know, the, yeah, I mean, you know, compared with gold, which has mm -hmm. had value for, from time immemorial, 
I just don't get it. And, you know, maybe, maybe Bitcoin is an exception to that. But I guess my big takeaway from that perspective about the FTX story is that whatever merits or demerits there may be to Bitcoin, it, it simply does not seem like that is translating to any of these other cryptocurrencies. Another interesting take that I saw this week, my friend Sora Amari, I thought, had a really interesting column for Tax, the American Conservative, where he basically talked about how we really, should, as a society, should have seen this coming when it comes to SBS as his initials uh, are, 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 as he is known as by his initials, because he really gave off a lot of signs of just being a weird dude. I mean, he, he he slept overnight on a beanbag in his office, despite being allegedly worth billions of dollars. He was he was living offshore in the Bahamas in like a ten-person condo or apartment, allegedly in like a poly a polyamorous amorous every pronounce that relationship. He, he he's a vegan. I mean, I mean, his hair is totally disheveled for someone of his net worth. I mean, there were there were a lot of danger signs here that I think kind of a society that is a little more rooted as far as kind of identifying potentially sociopathic people might have been able to identify. But you know, from the political perspective, the interesting thing that I saw the other day was they they asked Maxine Waters, given her prominence on financial services for decades, or lack of prominence as the case may be with Maxine Waters, um, about this whole scandal. And she basically just said, like, I'm not interested in pursuing it. And of course, that they're not, they're not interested in pursuing it, because the Democratic Party turns out a lot of their donor dollars this cycle, especially from crypto world, apparently, were deeply, deeply, deeply tainted. And it, it, it's, it's a really sad story. Um, you know, on a personal level, my grandfather was actually a victim of Bernie Madoff. So I, I kind of have a, a particular mm-hmm. kind of antenna up for this sort of financial skullduggery. And I, I, I hope that we can eventually get justice for the wrongs that were done here, because not, not every crime that needs justice is a homicide or a rape. White collar crimes of this nature absolutely demand justice as well. Thirty seconds. Does this become a big political issue, a story that continues, or does it die down after the flash? I think it probably will die down for better or for worse. You know, it's funny if SBF were a huge Republican donor, I think the story would have had legs, right? But the fact that he is a massive Democratic yes. donor, the, the media has every best interest to bury this story, and unfortunately, that's probably my prediction as to what will happen. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right about that. Josh Hammer, opinion editor at Newsweek, host of the Josh Hammer Show podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Always great to check in with you, my friend. You bet, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with much more coming up on the Jimmy Sangenberger Show on Denver's local talk leader, News Talk 710 KNUS. <laughs> John Lee Hooker Jr.'s tune, Blues Ain't Nothing But a Pimp. What a fun, clever, and creative song. And how fun. Ain't it the truth, though? The blues, it's, it encapsulates when your life is downtrodden, you're struggling to get by, or everything seems to be working against you. Man, the blues just ain't nothing but a pimp. Good to be with you with the most fun bumper music known to man. It's the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, News Talk 710 KNUS. This was a fun text. Of course, my stage name is Jimmy Jr. So one texter likes to call me Jr. All well and good. Good morning, Jr. 
I'd like to hear more about your time management skills regarding your ability to do all the things you do and still be able to study the blues, both new and old. It's called the car ride. When you're in the car, there are a couple things you can do. One, you can listen to music and enjoy it and familiarize yourself with it. Maybe put on one of those apps where you can just listen to the music and let it skip around and introduce you to new musicians or songs, etc. And you can also... Gosh, I remember when Bill Thorpe was like, don't say this on the air. You can also practice harmonica while you're driving. When If you drive one-handed, it's, it's really it's the easiest thing to do. Most people do. Like, you're not always two-handed on the, on the steering wheel. It's a small instrument. If you need to drop it, you can. You don't use your hands while you're on the road, you don't, or your second hand to do, you know, any of that hand vibrato stuff you just be careful about it and it's nice and easy you can use two hands even with it in your hand nice and easy to get some good harmonic practice and hand vibrato is this so you don't use your second hand and then you're fine so that's how you study the blues both new and old amid a busy schedule is in the car I'm Jimmy Sangenberger here on News Talk 710 KNUS. Coming up top of the hour, Dick Wadhams will join me. We'll talk about the state of play of politics in Colorado. And then what's the latest out of the Denver Public Schools Board of Education? We'll dive into that, the Trump special counsel appointment, and more. News Talk 710 KNUS 303-696-1971. Join us. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com